This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Small businesses play a vital role in Canadian communities. Visa knows this, and to show its support, it's offering female entrepreneurs grants and coaching And on Visa.ca, there are business-centric tools and resources to help entrepreneurs succeed in a digital environment. To learn more about how Visa is supporting small businesses, go to Visa.ca backslash small business. Over the weekend, China announced retaliatory sanctions against a Canadian member of parliament and a House of Commons subcommittee that had the temerity to speak out about the egregious human rights abuses against minority Muslims in Xinjiang province, who've been re-educated, sterilized, tortured, and subjected to all manner of grotesque treatment. I'm Gabe Friedman, the host of Down to Business, and my guest this week is Wesley Wark, an expert on national security and a senior fellow at the Center for International Governance Innovation in Waterloo. China's sanctions came after Canada, the US, the UK, and the European Union leveled their own sanctions earlier this month against some of the Chinese officials involved in the persecution of Uyghurs. As my guest explained, the threat of a full-on Cold War erupting between China and the West is still considered a remote possibility, but he expects that tensions over human rights and other issues will continue escalating and there's going to be more fallout. As always, the interview was edited for clarity and brevity. Wesley Wark, thanks so much for joining me on Down to Business this week. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Gabe. So we saw over the weekend that China announced sanctions against a member of parliament, a parliamentary subcommittee. Last week, Canada announced sanctions against China. Are we witnessing the sort of beginning of a new Cold War with China? It's a, it's a question on many people's minds, of course, particularly in, in the West. And, and I think, to be honest, there are some elements in what you could imagine as a kind of China hawk community in, in various Western countries that say that, you know, descent into a, a Cold War with China is inevitable. That wouldn't be my view. I mean, I think China clearly presents a variety of risks to Western countries. But I think at the same time, you know, we've tried to learn lessons about the dangers of the Cold War. And there should be, from my perspective, a determination to avoid a Cold War with China. And we may still have to confront China on many kinds of issues, but to avoid an overall kind of Cold War, which would divide China and, and the West into kind of two warring opposites, I think would, would be a huge mistake. And I also think that the kind of risk that China poses to the West is substantially different from the classic risk that we fear during the Cold War, which was a combination of a kind of vast ideological contest between communism and, you know, a democratic system of government, combined with a very serious armed confrontation, you know, including at the most serious level of, you know, a nuclear arms race and the potential for the outbreak of a nuclear war. I think with regard to China, the, the circumstances is different. I don't think there's any real substance to the notion that that we need to fear China as a kind of ideological uh, that that threatens our own 
poll for, for Western opinion. I just don't think it has that kind of attraction. And secondly, although China is modernizing aspects of its military, we are a long way from needing to think about China as a competitor in a potential you know, major military confrontation or with regard to a kind of nuclear arms race. So the circumstances are different. They're still concerning. And, and I think you know, no one has a, an answer to how we can encourage China to function as a responsible global actor and, and partner. But that has to be, I think, uh, the ongoing effort. In terms of ideological differences, it seems like the sanctions in the last week were all about human rights issues in China and the West coming together, I think sort of out of fear on some level, maybe not about military threat of China, but the surveillance, the technology threat, the the idea that they could gain control of the technological race. No, no, I think all of that's absolutely spot on. I think there's two things at play here. One is that the current leadership of the Chinese government is taking pains to suggest that the Chinese model of authoritarian government is kind of equal standing and benefit to the world compared to, to democratic regimes. And in some ways, you know, they'll point, for example, to their COVID-19 response and say that, you know, our system of government is superior. Look what we managed to do to pull out of the, the COVID crisis when we were the worst hit country. So that is part of their kind of global propaganda effort to portray themselves as a kind of independent political entity in the world with its own ideas about governance that is determined not to bow to hoarded Western ideas. And and there's a kind of long history, of course, uh, behind that discourse in in China in terms of a sort of anti-imperial response. So, So there is that. I think the big difference between now and the old Cold War is that, you know, during the Cold War, certainly in its in its most virulent moment, it was really seen as an ideological contest between two competing ideas of political organization, between Soviet-style communism or international communism, the common turn and so on, and Western democracy. And it is the, it certainly was the case during the early days of the Cold War, at least, before really a lot of the crimes of the Soviet Union became clear public knowledge that, you know, that that idea of Soviet-style communism had a lot of attraction in the West. I think, you know, nowadays, uh, you would be very hard-pressed to find anyone in the West who thought that the Chinese model of governance was attractive or compelling or likely to, to lead them to feel uh, really divided loyalties about how they would like to see their, their political system governed. So China may want to extol itself as a, a new political model. But the reality is that uh, while that may have a bit of traction in parts of the world, you know, in the parts of the global south in particular. That's a good point. Largely, I think, for economic self-interest and any other reason. But, you know, Chinese communism isn't, uh, isn't an idea that's going to conquer the world in the way that Nikita Khrushchev and others thought that Soviet communism might. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, if you look at the past two years or so, it has been a story of sort of economic distancing. China has restricted imports from Canada of canola, of beef. It, it's not done this only to Canada. It's done this to other countries too. Australia, coal exports, you know, were suddenly blocked. Yeah. How do you see this turbulence in the relationship evolving? Yeah, I, I think that turbulence is, is real and it's going to persist. And the Chinese have made no bones about being very public about their aspirations with regard to becoming a kind of global technology leader on the basis of Chinese science and industrial capability. 
And this is an alarming proposition for Western countries who fear that technological dominance by China will have very adverse impacts on, you know, their own politics and economics. And I think we're clearly, you know, in the early stages of a great technology race between the West and China, which has all kinds of political ramifications and economic spillovers in terms of of various forms of you know, trade wars, trade competitions, efforts to ban certain technologies to keep technologies under national control and so on. And that's changing the, you know, the geopolitics of the world. But ultimately, I mean, my long-term view of this would be that, that what the Chinese race to technological superiority is going to create in the West is a pushback, not just against that Chinese determination, but a pushback in terms of Kind of renewed investment in cutting-edge technologies in the West. In other words, I think the Chinese desire to be technologically dominant is a fool's dream, and it will only stimulate greater efforts on the part of Western countries, you know, which which have the capacity to to match, if not overmatch, anything that China might develop in in those sectors. Do you think we're at a cusp right now, though? You know, ten years ago, no one would have said China's technological prowess is anywhere close enough to the West. But more recently, I think, like if you look at like electric vehicles, some of the green stuff, you do see these reports that China's ahead of us, maybe on AI. They have so much more surveillance technology. What will the technology of the future be that they will win on? Would you, if you had to guess? <laughs> you know, I think um, I'm not sure they'll win on anything. I mean, I guess that's my point, Gabe. They will become very good at many things. And they will have a different way of applying some of those things that they're good at, particularly surveillance, both within China in terms of also exporting uh, Chinese surveillance capabilities to other countries that are willing to to take on those systems. To be honest, I think, you know, Chinese competition is real. We are in the middle of a kind of technological race that is stimulating a lot of activity. But I don't see any technology sector that is bound to be dominated by China. In other words, where the West is, is either incapable or so far behind of, of keeping up with, with China. And I think that goes for some of the, you know, the key sectors, artificial intelligence and uh, quantum computing come to mind, for example, but there are many others. You know, China off at scale, of course, is a huge country with a huge population and has some of the benefits of a command and control economy, as they're classically, uh, you know, thought of, with, with government directing essentially certain economic sectors. But with, what we also know from history is that com- command and control economies also have huge problems in terms of, of efficiency and output, and also in terms of meeting consumer demand. So I guess two things, Gabe. One is that I don't think China is going to win a technological race. It's going to pose many challenges to the West, but I don't think it's going to win it outright. And secondly, I think that the West will respond, is responding. And finally, I think the future of the Chinese economy and society is is an open question. The more they make these sophisticated advances, you know, the more they create the conditions which might impel change within China. Interesting. And in terms of the technology Right now, there's all this discussion about 5G networks and whether to allow China's Huawei to operate or not in Western countries. Yeah. How do you see some of those questions resolving? Do you think that technologically we're going to move further apart or onto independent tracks? Or do you think ultimately there's going to be some sort of compromise? 
Yeah, it's a good question. I, you know, I think it's always hard to predict. I think on 5G, the, the outcome is already clear that Western countries will band together to ensure that their 5G networks, both the government-controlled networks and, you know, public networks, will not have any Chinese components, in essential Chinese components in them, whether built by Huawei or somebody else. So Canada, to be clear, hasn't done that yet, though, right? We're sort of trailing behind the U.S. and U.K. and other countries on that front. Well, we haven't declared. But in, in effect, the government has found itself in a, if you like, a half a position where it ha- uh, doesn't have to declare because the United States has made those moves for it and the private sector has followed quickly behind. I mean, none of the major telecommunications providers in Canada want to be left, left behind in a 5G implementation race. They are all, you know, very sensitive to the challenges of using Chinese equipment and, and all the major Chinese, or the Canadian telecommunications companies have, have already decided to move ahead on 5G development and rollout without uh, Huawei or other Chinese components in their network. I think the trajectory that we're facing at the moment is a, is a downward one in terms of uh, China in the West and China in Canada. But it's, it's not a sort of bottomless descent. We, we will have to find a way, I, I think this is widely recognized, uh, to work with China. And we're just trying to figure out those areas where we can work with China and uh, those areas where we have to counter Chinese uh, activities. Yeah, this was great. I just want to thank you again for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thanks. Great conversation. Thanks very much. That was Wesley Wark, Senior Fellow at the Center for International Governance Innovation. Thanks for listening to this week's show, and thank you to Bryce Hall for music and production, Yadula Hussein for editing, and Pamela Heaven for web support. Please consider rating Down to Business on whatever app you use to listen to this show and sharing other episodes with friends. I'm Gabe Friedman, and until next week, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com.